Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Hatley Post. This insight episode comes from full episode 71 with Bridie McGreevy. Bridie is an associate professor in the Department of Communication and Journalism at the University of Maine, Orono. Bridie talks with Michael and special guest Karen Bielak, a prior colleague of his at Dartmouth College and a current colleague of Bridie at the University of Maine, about the importance of indigenous knowledge and relationships with the land in understanding and protecting shellfish fisheries and local communities in Maine. This is the In Common Podcast. So we haven't gotten into the shellfish fishery as much um, you know, in our discussion, but I think um, I want to pivot a little bit, change, change direction a little bit, and talk a little more about that fishery. Um, it's been important to coastal communities for millennia. So I want to learn a little bit more in the background of that and why you see this particular issue as useful in thinking about sustainability, of uh, sustainability solutions. Why is it a, a good model system for us to be looking at? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, my research group, so uh, the, the collaborators, core collaborators on the Maine Shellfish Learning Network include Tony Sutton, who I already mentioned, and a PhD student who uh, we've been working with, um, Gabby Hillier. In terms of the longer history and the cultural values and the forms of attachment uh, that are associated with this fishery, we've been talking a lot about shell mounds, you know, those those shell middens, the, the piles of oyster shells and clam shells and mussel shells that themselves, as a material form of evidence <laughs> and entity, tell a story about the, you know, the, the relationship between people and shellfish that has occurred for millennia, you know, in, in terms of Wabanaki people's ongoing reliance on, on um, this uh, resource. Um, and so that's part of it is like attending to um, these stories within the landscape and what those stories can tell us about the multiple values of shellfish. Um, but then we've also seen, you know, and this is actually related to a, a project um, that Alice Kelly and Bonnie Newsom are leading to document these shell middens um, because, you know, these are ecosystems and, and these artifacts that are um, threatened, right, because of, of climate change. And, and I would also say um, colonial patterns of, of relating um, to the land. Um, and, and we're seeing these effects in the erosion of the shell middens um, and, and also in the steep declines in clam landings and uh, licenses. Now, it's not a simple relationship between, you know, warming ocean temperatures and changes in species composition like green crabs, where, you know, in some cases, this is definitely having a major impact on clam populations as the green crabs basically wipe them out. Um, However, there are a number of social forces that are also contributing to these kinds of, of changes where the clam landings, so the amount of clams or the weight of clams brought to market and sold every year is not a direct um, indicator for the health of clam populations. We don't actually have uh, data about that. Um, and so it, it makes us ask, okay, so, so if clam landings are going down and license sales are down, what else is going on here um, beyond the, the pressures from um, predation? 
Uh, and so competition among fisheries is, is really important influence here. The lobster fishery is, um, a, a pretty powerful presence. And, and so, um, you know, there's a lot more we could say about that. Um, and issues related to uh, rural poverty and, and um, access to education resources and, and, and these kinds of things um, that uh, limit the kinds of fisheries that people uh, participate in. Um, and a host of other, you know, economic and social and cultural influences as well. So it's, it's a fishery that um, is in trouble. Um, and yet at the same time, the, the co-management system, although it's a colonial institution, the co-management system creates a social space that wouldn't other, otherwise exist in these communities. It creates uh, the exigence for people coming together to talk about what's going on and to, to make shared decisions and to come up with policies you know, through their, their shellfish ordinances um, to try and sustain the resource into the future. Um, and so there's great opportunity there. And, um, and I think that there's also opportunity within the co-management system. This is something that we're, we're really starting to talk about um, in a focused way for decolonizing that system as well. And thinking about what would it mean um, to do things like provide um, uh, licenses to tribal members or to to recognize within these programs uh, tribal sovereignty and and fishery and sustenance fishing rights. Tell us more about the co-management system because that idea of it being an opportunity um, for decolonization is really is is interesting. Tell us how the licenses are assigned or given because I think right now we're talking about municipal, right, at the municipal level, but that would be a different entity for a tribal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know that I have a good answer to that. Like I said, like, we're really just starting to explore what this, this might mean, but we're interested in um, one of the origins that, that created the conditions essentially for, for co-management as a system to emerge in the 1800s. And one of these origins, an important one, is um, the Body of Liberties, which was produced in 1640 and then revised in 1647. Some people have described the Body of Liberties associated with the Massachusetts Bay Colony Ordinance as the precursor to the Bill of Rights. So this was a, a set of rules that a couple of colonists came up with there were something like 98 different rules, many of which were, were justice oriented. Um, not all, because one of them made an exception um, that essentially allowed slavery um, to, to occur within New England. But they did have an orientation to, to justice and to, to protecting um, people's rights. And, and one of the key pieces of that was um, that they had a clause in there that granted the rights of access to the coast for fishing, fowling, and navigation. And so this is why in, in Maine and Massachusetts, you know, you can go and, and still dig clams and, and mussels um, simply by getting a, a municipal license. Um, and so that commitment to access, I think, is a core value. And it makes me wonder about how, how could that value be, that value of equitable access um, be broadened? 
That's that's interesting. I had never heard of the body of liberties before. Maybe now is a good time to think back to some of the successes and challenges that have stood out to you in your work in this fishery. There's so many. I like <laughs> North Star. So I guess I'll start. You know, I said a few things about successes um, before. Um, and for me, you know, the work that we're currently able to do in the Maine Shellfish Learning Network stands as, as a success. You know, the, the development of this learning network organization in, in and of itself, I'd describe as success. But I think more importantly, one of the most important markers of success for me is the quality and persistence of the relationships that have made the learning network possible, right? Because those we've built over the last 10 years or more, um, where we've been working with, with the same people and then obviously connecting with new people um, as the work grows. Um, but but those, those relationships are the most important part of this. Um, w without those, it just, it wouldn't exist. Um, and of course, you know, through that we've all, well, through that, we've been able to do some some really, I think, important things. Um, like uh, we've been making good progress on um, addressing a policy issue that has really constrained adaptive capacities within these communities. Um, so right now, uh, there are a number of of communities that are trying to grow clams so that they can then reseed their flats. But the issue is that doing so um, means they have to go through the whole aquaculture regulation process for what's called LPAs or limited purpose aquaculture. Uh, and we've heard from a, a number of different towns that, that this is just a barrier. Um, so we haven't like solved that problem yet. And I don't even know that that's <laughs> it's ever gonna be solved in a final sense, but, but we have initiated a process and, and have made good progress towards understanding what could be done to address that issue and then um, working first and foremost with DMR um, to try and uh, try and change um, how those projects are reviewed um, so that it falls within municipal shellfish co-management and not aquaculture. Um, and then in terms of challenges, um, I think it's also, you know, relationships, as I was saying earlier, um, that, that there's, Maybe a truism that like the longer you work with people, the easier it gets. I don't think that's always true <laughs> because, you know, the longer you work with people, the more complexities that arise, right? And and you have memories, uh, shared memories and experiences um, that can can influence the the course of a relationship, um, and that be become part of your work together. Um, you have that shared history and, and sometimes that history can facilitate, but it can also potentially inhibit a collaboration as well. Um, and so uh, Donna Haraway describes this, it's a similar kind of situation as, as one of staying with the trouble, right? <laughs> like staying with the trouble of, of those kinds of histories. Um, and yeah, so I, I reflect on that when the collaboration, when a challenge comes up in a collaboration, it's like, okay, what is this, what is this about? What does this help me understand about, about this situation or relationship and, and how can we work through it together? 
I know relationships have been central in all of your decision-making. I remember when you were trying to decide what to do post-PhD and your commitment to your community partners weighed heavily on your mind of wanting to persist and stay with this, with this issue. So instead of you know, leaving it after four years, it didn't feel, didn't sit right with you. And I, and I can see relationships being so central in your work both the pluses and minuses of these relationships. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's really uh, the core part of, of knowledge co-production, right? We, we sometimes emphasize the applicability of the knowledge. Like if you produce knowledge in these more collaborative ways, it's gonna be seen as, as more relevant for decision-making. People are gonna understand it more. They're gonna be able to incorporate it into, you know, whatever context they're working in. Um, but, you know, Sheila Jasanoff talks about in ways that are that really um, resonate with Karen, the constitutive approach to communication, right? The social construction part of, of knowledge co-production, where when you're engaging in these collaborative processes, you're changing your own identity and, and sense of self. And those relationships become uh, deeply meaningful, right? They're, they're enriching uh, in, in a person's life. Um, and in many ways, I think, push on the boundary between the personal and, and the professional. Um, and then it constitutes our organizations, too. And, and the Maine Shelters Learning Network is a really good example of that. It, it emerged out of these knowledge co-production processes that wouldn't exist otherwise. But then, you know, the stakes of that is that, yeah, <laughs> when I graduated as a PhD, I, I just wanted to keep doing the work that I was doing because it's, you know, it's meant so much in those ways. Thanks for tuning in. The In Common Podcast is a partner project of the International Association for the Study of the Commons and the International Journal of the Commons. To explore more episodes of the podcast, as well as our blog, visit our website at www.incommonpodcast.org. Here you will also find a list of the members of our recently expanded team, as well as a link to our Patreon page where you can make a small donation to help us cover our operating costs. You can also follow us on Twitter at InCommonPod. Thanks again.